This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, the United States of Secrets. Later in the show, we'll be talking to Terry Lenzner, the founder and chairman of Investigative Group International and one of Washington's prominent private eyes. With Monica Lewinsky's recent reappearance on the pages of Vanity Fair and the continued daily speculation about Hillary Clinton's campaign plans, the latest this week, courtesy of an arrow-slinging Karl Rove, we recall Terry's role the first time Monica's name made news. But what few people know about Terry is how he got his start in the business, fresh out of Harvard in the early 60s, investigating the murders in Mississippi that have been the subject of some of our recent shows. We'll talk to Terry at the bottom of the hour. But first, speaking of secrets, Michael Kirk is the writer and director of part one of Frontline's The United States of Secrets, which premiered this week with part two coming Tuesday night on a PBS station near you. With the National 9-11 Museum having opened here in New York this week, it's fitting to look back on those days as we've done here in the past, but not at what happened at Ground Zero or aboard Air Force One, but at the top deck of the National Security Agency. There, General Michael Hayden scrambled to put whatever the NSA had into the fight, as they said. One tool at his disposal, and you can hear frontline narrator Will Lyman saying it was the program. The program is the story is the focus of Michael Kirk's latest film in the Frontline series, a riveting two hours on PBS. And Michael joins us from WGBH in Boston. Welcome, Michael, to Polyoptics. Hi, Josh. Thank you for inviting me. Congratulations on the on the film. It's 13 years later, Michael. The 9/11 Museum, as I just said, was dedicated this week. What's the difference between then and now about the information we gather con- con- clandestinely on our own citizens? Well, I think just before 9-11, there had been a movement afoot inside the NSA worried about the hints that the CIA and others were picking up that there might be um, some asymmetrical warfare in our future. Um, And they wanted to try to find a way to turn the uh, eyes and ears of the NSA away from potentates and capitals around the world and turn them on. Uh, San Diego and Minneapolis and other places inside the U.S., but there was a strong prohibition against doing that at the NSA ever since the 1970s in the Nixon administration when uh, uh, they had been spying on radicals and dissidents and even people like Martin Luther King. So there was a rule in place in 1999 and 2000 and early 2001 that despite the need, the feeling that maybe they should be looking at the connection of what was happening with al-Qaeda and other uh, terrorist groups to Americans, uh, they weren't really doing anything about it. They were technologically old-fashioned and philosophically unable to do it. Suddenly, 9-11 happens, and within a year, uh, it has all changed. The bright white lines have disappeared, and the people working, many of the people working at the NSA, are doing the very thing they always said they wouldn't. They're spying on Americans. They're grabbing everything they can grab from the Internet, from telephone records. Uh, just an amazing change has taken place. And by now, 13, 12, 13 years later, I guess 13 years later, uh, it's just uh, institutionalized. And the reservoirs of data 
in places like Bluffdale, Utah, are immense. But, Michael Kirk, we heard on your documentary and those who followed the campaign closely that Barack Obama was declaring an end to the secrecy and the most transparent administration in history. What happened? You know, it's an interesting thing. You, too, Josh, would know how presidents act differently once they become presidents. There's the candidate who probably believes, there's no reason to believe Barack Obama didn't believe it when he said whistleblowers were the foundation of transparency and error, a democracy that uh, there was a way to win the war on terror without spying on Americans. He probably did believe that when he said it as a candidate. Uh, As a senator, he was faced with a kind of smooth maneuver by the Bush White House to create uh, the FISA Amendments Act, which would enshrine into law what they'd been doing, what many thought they'd been doing illegally since 2001, and certainly what they knew was on the edge of constitutionality. And Obama, facing that as a candidate, as a presidential candidate, uh, knew that he needed to build up his... uh, in national security uh, resume, uh, decided to take the tough vote, despite what he'd said as a candidate. As a senator, he takes the vote and, and, and agrees with the White House to create what we now know is an even more a pervasive uh, system of, uh, of uh, surveillance and spying, for lack of a more precise word. And then, as president, only six months later, he's read into the program. He's the horse blanket from the security forces is rolled out in front of him, this gigantic map of the world that says, here's where the soft spots are. Here's where we don't know. Here's where we're dark. Here's where we're worried. And like any politician, any certainly any president, uh, even the one you worked for, there is this moment where they say, on political terms alone, I can't dial it back. It I seems can't like it seems because... like everybody in your film, Michael, gets gets threatened with the blood will be on your hands threat if you do anything to roll back the program. Let's begin then 13, 14 years ago, because you have some so many fascinating interviews in part one of the United States of Secrets. And one of them is Ed Loomis, who seemed to think that pre 9-11, there was a way to actually tap into this metadata without violating people's uh, uh, privacy or personal information. Let's hear this riveting part of your conversation with Ed Loomis. Some at the agency thought the NSA had been overly cautious and believed the 9-11 attacks could have been stopped. I do believe it could have been prevented with revisions to the way we were permitted to operate before 9-11. Revisions that I tried to get the general counsel to embrace and and wouldn't and, and wouldn't I tried to get them to make adjustments to how we were operating, how were we permitted to operate, and they wouldn't do it. Michael, as you talked to Ed, were you surprised by how many folks were part of Ed's group that had been on the verge of being able to deploy the new technology? Uh, uh, Yes. Um, There are 20,000 people who work at the NSA. They tend to be people who, when I was younger, we would have called them pocket protector people. They were 
they're scientists, they're crypto-linguists, they're crypto-mathematicians, they're Americans, patriots, former Eagle Scouts, former military service personnel uh, who really uh, uh, believe in, uh, that they're doing their patriotic duty to protect America. So, but and nevertheless, knowing that about them, knowing that they were, you know, good people who thought they were doing something that saved the country, uh, to hear the level of emotion that came out of Mr. Loomis, much to my surprise, it, it, it you know, it really, I think, gets at the the level of uh, guilt and sadness that they all felt by uh, September 12, 2001 and what had happened. They really, I think, felt they blew it. And uh, they'd been created as an agency in the wake of Pearl Harbor. Their job was to give us an early warning from signals intelligence, and they had blown it. They'd seen the whole thing go down on September 11th on a $300 television set on CNN at the director of the NSA's office. So, man, you can imagine, but you can't, you can't feel it until you, you, you see somebody like Ed Loomis and the other people we talked to who eventually become whistleblowers, uh, how strongly they felt uh, that, uh, that, what, uh, that what the agency uh, had done was blow it on 9-11. On the opposite side of the emotional spectrum, perhaps a person who even now today is very confident in the things that he did as head of the NSA was General Michael Hayden. He was not too well known to the White House at the time of 9-11, had never met President Bush. Perhaps Andy Card uh, didn't even know him uh, either, but he was summoned to the White House and uh, for his first uh, briefing in front of the president. And uh, Will Lyman sets up the scene. The president had been briefed. He put his arm around General Hayden, called him his childhood nickname, Mikey. So I walk in to see the president. It's, it's the president and the vice president uh, in the room. Um, almost certainly Condi was there as the national security advisor. Andy Card would have been there. Cheney suggests the question and George Bush asks it. What would you like to do that you can't already do that would help prevent another 9-11? Hayden outlined the program. It would gather data on the phone calls and internet traffic of hundreds of millions of Americans, then search it for suspicious connections. So, Michael Kirk, what exactly does Michael Hayden leave the White House now empowered to do? The president, at the end of that uh, presentation from uh, General Hayden, uh, he looks at the president and says, but I have a problem, Mr. President. I, I'm not sure about the legality of doing this. And uh, the president says, I, uh, I know, but don't worry about it. We've got lawyers working on this, and uh, I think I have the authorization to do this. Basically, what he says is unilaterally, without Congress or the courts, uh, I can use my executive authority in a time of emergency, and, uh, and you're good to go. And when Hayden leaves the White House, he believes that he has the presidential authority to turn the eyes and ears of the NSA right squarely on uh, American soil. And, Michael, there were people who obviously didn't talk to you for this film, people like Dick Cheney, his legal team, uh, Laura Poitras. I mean, I, I made a long list of people who, boy, I wish... Michael Kirk could talk to them. But Michael Hayden is effusive and a great source for you on camera, on the record. What did you make of him as he sort of reflects now that Obama and this administration is using 
a version of the program post its congressional authorization more vigorously than it was even imagined in 2001? Um, first, we also, just in our own defense, got an awful lot of people who'd never really spoken about this. Absolutely, before, right? absolutely. Like, and we'll get into like some Alvaro of those, too. Gonzalez and Andy Oh, Cart and, and Gonzalez is great. Deets. Yeah. No, it, <laughs> I, I no, it was an amazing film, and you got some amazing people to talk. No, no right. Doubt. So I'm not, I'm not trying to be defensive. Yeah. I'm just trying to sh- say that there was a sort of there is a sort of impossibility factor that I, I'm really proud of the fact yeah. that we managed to s- surmount some of the obstacles. Now, uh, Hayden as a does person, Hayden say, yeah, Hayden, Hayden, um, Hayden believes that he did the right thing. He to this day, uh, I think he knew. Yeah, we say in the film that he he goes back from the White House and he takes a walk with his wife. Yeah. In the in the on the Fort Meade campus, what they call the campus, and and she says, "What's bothering you?" And he says, without any giving her any classified details, "Here's what we're fixing to do something." He says that's going to be really controversial and has never been done. And she says, um, "Is it the right thing to do?" And he or the way he tells the story, and he says, "Yes." And she says, "Well, then we'll deal with the." But he said, "But there's going to be a lot of trouble." when it finally comes out and uh, this is that day when it's finally come out going back a year to Snowden and now to this film where he was both generous enough and maybe in a kind of hubristic way told us details in a way that it was sort of surprising that a guy would lay it all out so happily so with such level of detail so unabashedly but then you can lean back and say he really believes that they were doing the right thing and that it's the time where he's going to have to pay the consequences for that and um, and you in a way you have to admire his willingness to step up there and and lay out his side of the story and uh, you know his feeling about the Obama administration is that it was inevitable that it was going to do what it did it wasn't surprising to him at all because as he says any president when faced with the uh, with the reality of what's out there, uh, it's not going to walk back from something, uh, some weapon, some weapon system, some idea like this that's going to get him one piece of information that may uh, uh, stop another 9-11. What's, what's amazing is the way Hayden sort of uh, almost wonders aloud whether Bush is going to sell him out in late 2006 uh, or, or back Everybody the program. Remember what he calls it? He said that the the New York Times runs the story, right? Yeah, and it's headlines everywhere, and uh, is the big guy revealed the existence, and he calls it the big pause, right? He said this is the moment of the big pause when the when what's the big guy going to do? <laughs> right? Is he going to sell you out or or accept uh, responsibility? <laughs> and then and then also when Jim Risen gets him on the phone. He almost yeah. blurts it out right there. And then even after probably your production ended, there was the issue of Hayden, I think, on the Acela, talking fairly loudly on his cell phone about issues that he probably should have taken to a phone booth. Uh, it, it, yes, exactly. And it makes you think he doesn't really... It must be... I mean, I don't want to get in his head because I, I can't get in his head and I really shouldn't get in his head, but it's almost like, you, you know, this happens when you do what I do for a living, which is really long interviews with uh, people who are used to talking about things, but they've never talked 
this long with anybody uh, who knows a lot about it like we end up doing by the time we get around to Mike Hayden. We know every detail of the chronology. We know everything that's that we can get our hands on. So he's not, I think, used to people who are going to hook it all together in one big two-hour thing or sit next to him on a train and listen to it. It's just so much a part of who he is and what he's done and what he believes was right, that I don't think it really crosses his mind to have a kind of governor about that. Or not used to Edward Snowden finding the Inspector General's report from the NSA and giving it to uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald and Poitras uh, in Hong Kong. Wasn't that astonishing? Astonishing that such a thing exists. The draft report of an inspector general that lays out the entire history of the program. And the thing is, Josh, nothing... uh, was there were no contemporaneous notes ever written. So the report is testimony. People like Hayden delivered uh, the information to the report. So in other words, nobody was keeping like they usually do written notes of anything, of dates, times, when Addington drove out to the top deck at the NSA and delivered the secret authorization. There are no actual dates or times or logs ever, ever uh, written about any of it. That's just amazing to me. When you're putting together the documentary as a device, um, and in some of the scenes you see these very fast scrolling documents that a viewer is led to believe uh, are the Snowden documents, are those the actual Snowden documents? Those are the documents. And uh, how? Do, what was your method of editing those together and including those in the film? How did you approach that? Well, the first place, lots of lawyers have spent a lot of time looking at what it is we're showing. Um, uh, almost everything that we show on the screen has been uh, shown or reported or delivered uh, by a newspaper or two newspapers or in some way is... In other words, we don't have anything that we've... What, what the Justice Department might claim would be illegally obtained classified documents, but they are uh, material from uh, Edward Snowden that's been uh, released. So, uh, And we've, we tried to be really careful, understanding that people could stop and freeze frame things, not to include any operational details or anything that anybody would be uh, uh, killed if it was discovered, or even... Um, programs revealed that haven't otherwise been vetted or checked or reported on by other journalists. We were using it as illustration, but we were also uh, trying to use the real thing. I, uh, I, it did flash, it flashes so quickly before the viewer's eyes, but I did notice a lot of redactions in the documents that, that went before you. As a device to increase the viewer's paranoia, talk to me about uh, both whatever a filmmaker calls that sort of satellite zoom in with the green tint glow thing, and also your use of some of these, uh, the footage of server rooms to just sense that everything is being taped and recorded. The Yes, the, um, the challenge, of course, to making a two-hour public affairs documentary and, and not really wanting to get into the business of of uh, hiring actors or anything like that to to play the role of various people uh, is that you have to kind of create a line of what is you know acceptable uh, for il- illustration purposes and what isn't so we have a kind of standing rule that documents will be you know real documents uh, authenticated uh, however we acquire them sometimes surreptitiously 
that uh, audio headlines and other things will be real audio headlines. We don't use announcers to fake audio headlines. Uh, that, uh, but that in some cases it's okay to use, um, you know, servers, backs of computers, different things to illustrate the unillustratable. How do you illustrate the program, the surreptitious gathering of whatever? You can only show the exterior of buildings or whatever so many different ways. We sometimes call them guilty buildings. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you, you, you really, uh, you have to hope that what you're doing is conjuring up for the viewer a kind of world that things are happening in without creating it necessarily editorially uh, in, a, in a way that is a, a, a lie uh, or gilding the lily or whatever it is. So... Uh, you know, and you have to walk your own fine line there. Uh, I've been doing this a long, long time, and and uh, I have a kind of, and, and certainly Frontline has standards that you must meet uh, that are different than what you might do if you were doing a theatrical feature or something else. Well, you don't need to do a theatrical feature, uh, Michael Kirk, to come away with this huge sense of drama at very, at many different points of the United States of Secrets, and one of them comes when uh, uh, Deputy, Atter- Deputy Attorney General James Comey talks to uh, Attorney General John Ashcroft just hours before Ashcroft is uh, admitted to a local hospital with, uh, with terrible stomach pains. Let's hear that. Goldsmith's boss, Deputy Attorney General James Comey, delivered the news to John Ashcroft. Parts of the program appeared to be illegal. They go to the Attorney General, John Ashcroft, they say, we don't think this is legal. We think we need to get this changed, or we need to stop what's going on, because we don't have a solid foundation to go on. Ashcroft was supposed to sign a reauthorization of the entire program every 45 days, and for two and a half years, he had. But now he balked. There were some guilty-looking ambulances there. Uh, Michael Kirk is then uh, Ashcroft is admitted to the hospital, and he gets some strange visitors that night, doesn't he? It's pretty. It's one of those great historical. I mean, what happens in those two or three days in Washington D.C.? Uh, uh, President Bush's presidency goes right to the edge of the cliff. Uh, I've ne- when I heard, first heard the story many years ago, it was. Oh my God! This is this is unprecedented, and it really is. What happens is, he's in the hospital with pancreatitis. The White House, desperate to get the program reauthorized, uh, sends. Uh, it's actually President Bush who sends uh, Alberto Gonzalez, his chief of his chief attorney, and Andy Card, his chief of staff, and David Addington, uh, the vice president's lawyer, who wrote the. Uh, the original authorization, up to Ashcroft's hospital room to get him to sign off on it. Uh, He's near death uh, in the hospital, and his wife hears that they're coming. She calls the main desk at the uh, Justice Department that calls acting director Comey's uh, car. The driver answers Comey uh, tells the driver, throw a siren up on the roof and make a U-turn on Constitution Avenue. Let's get back to George Washington Hospital and let me let me get to him before these two characters from the White House arrive. Others from the Justice Department, including the 
head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, are racing to beat them there. FBI agents guarding the door of uh, Attorney General Ashcroft's room are told, you know, not to remove people even if uh, Card and and uh, and Gonzalez ask them to. So everybody's gathered around the bed of the very very sick John Ashcroft when Jack Goldsmith, who's the head of the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department, tells us on camera that uh, he watches this scene unfold where Ashcroft suddenly rises like Lazarus and begins to uh, uh, read the riot act to Gonzalez and Card about how they shouldn't, uh, they shouldn't be doing this. The program is obviously unconstitutional and that he's been advised not that it's not uh, uh, legal and that they ought to uh, stop doing it. And by the way, he's not the attorney general at this moment. Uh, uh, James Comey is. And with that, he apparently just falls back onto the bed. And as Jack Goldsmith tells us, uh, it looked like he was going to expire. It is truly amazing that those two guys leave empty-handed without a signature and head back to the White House. And, uh, and then... Uh, it's cooked up by uh, Vice President Cheney and David Addington that they rewrite the document with removing the Attorney General's signature line and adding instead Alberto Gonzalez, the President's attorney, to the to the line to sign the signature and authorize this unbelievably darkest kept secret uh, in a, in uh, in the American government. Uh, uh, Gonzalez, who has no statutory authority. I don't know what Senate uh, confirmed Alberto Gonzalez to that role. You know, it's like... Exactly, and neither did he, but he told us on camera that, you know, the president is not a lawyer. Uh, I'm really there to uh, protect the president, and uh, and I really thought uh, I should help him by signing the document, and he, and he did. And in the ensuing period, Michael Kirk, like the entire political echelon of the Justice Department is about to walk out the door because of this. Nearly 24 people prepare their uh, their uh, resignations, including Jack Goldsmith and James Comey. We have a copy of Comey's resignation, and uh, it, it reads like a tragic, uh, uh, you know, horrible note, because uh, nobody would understand better than Jim Comey the implications of the Deputy Attorney General uh, and uh, maybe as many as 24 other top people from the Justice Department resigning in the middle of an election year. But thanks to the FISA court, uh, the program has returned to uh, to full strength, as it were. Let's hear a little bit of uh, uh, Director Hayden after that decision was made. Collar Catelli's secret ruling relied on a controversial interpretation of a 25-year-old Supreme Court case. This was, frankly, a huge stretch. Uh, the idea that you could use this to justify the collection of uh, trillions of pieces of Internet metadata surprised a lot of people when it came out uh, in the Snowden archives, but that's where they went. The program was back online, bigger than ever. That part of the program over which there was a grand dispute in the spring of 2004 was resumed in large measure under a different legal theory by the fall. So, Michael Kirk, the the, the program really uh, it's it's all almost just like a hiccup uh, as the as the intelligence continues to be gathered. But meanwhile, you know, across uh, in the sort of other part of official Washington, the media part, there's this tension brewing between 
veteran reporters of the New York Times, James Rice, James Rison and Eric Lichtblau. Lichtblau and I used to play poker together in Washington. But, well, he was back at the LA Times before he became Big Eric Lichtblau. Um, but they're on top of this story, and Bill Keller. Uh, the executive editor at the time, and of course this week Jill Abramson, the executive editor of the New York Times, uh, was dismissed in favor of Dean Baquet. But but when Keller was still at the helm, you'd think the Times would be ready to publish the story, and they go into uh, the Oval Office, and uh, we hear what happens when, when Bill Keller is sort of presented the facts by many of the Bush uh, administration advisors. The administration invited the Times' top editors to a closed-door meeting. Executive editor Bill Keller met with the president's top advisors, Condoleezza Rice, General Hayden, Alberto Gonzalez, and others, who insisted to Keller that revealing the existence of the program would endanger national security. I had a consensus of everybody that we had contact with in the administration um, that this would be an extremely dangerous thing to do. These were, you know, serious people, uh, a consensus across the board of, of those who talked to us that it was going to be dangerous, a level of stridency that was quite impressive. And, you know, after much discussion, decided uh, that we weren't ready to go with it. Keller spiked the story. The White House had prevailed. The program would remain a well-kept secret. Michael, a fascinating thread of your documentary is this tension at the New York Times with Jim Risen on one side and the, the, and the Times legal guys and Bill Keller on the other with the Oval Office trying to pry them apart. It's just uh, amazing that they were so candid with us about it. Maybe enough time has gone by. I don't know that, that Phil Taubman, the Washington bureau chief at the time, and Bill Keller, the former executive editor, and Risen and Lichblau, all uh, all willing to tell us that essentially what happens then is that for one year, uh, basically, the program grows unfettered, unreported by anybody. Uh, another deep, dark secret, another year of deep, dark secret uh, uh, happening around the program when uh, finally Risen takes a book leave and decides to write a book. And in, in the book... Uh, create a chapter called The Program and tell the story of what he and Lichblau found and that the Times had spiked. And when they got the word at uh, the New York Times uh, head office in New York that Risen was doing this, uh, uh, an unbelievable showdown begins between the Times editors and Risen about uh, whether or not they should now have to run the story because Risen is one of the reporters told us, had a gun to their head. Uh, and in the end, uh, they decide they have to. But before they can, uh, the President of the United States summons them to the Oval Office on a dark and stormy uh, December night. Yeah, and let's uh, let's just hear a little bit of the, of, the, of the view of some of the participants, I think, from Hayden of that dark and stormy night. It was indeed a dark and stormy night. I remember it. It was dark and it was stormy. And uh, we were in the Oval. Mr. Salzberger began to speak and the president said, I'm going to go first. I want to talk to you about this program. I want to talk to you about why this is important, why we think it saves lives, and why it should not be made public. The president turned the meeting over to General Hayden for one of his famous briefings. It's hard to brief in the Oval. You know, you can't 
There are no visual aids, hard to roll out something in front of somebody. So I gave him the best explanation of the program I could, but I did bring up specific examples. The example he gives them is a plot in which a radical is planning to bring down the Brooklyn Bridge, apparently with a device similar to a blowtorch. A device similar to a blowtorch, Michael Kirk. I mean, I think I could probably uh, attempt that. Uh, and so Bill Keller decides, I can't really sit on Jim's story much longer, can I? Exactly. And the president does the one thing uh, they often do, which is uh, look at Keller and really Sulzberger, the the publisher of the New York Times, and say, okay, if you run this story, you have to understand that if there's another 9-11, not these exact words, but something to this effect, um, again, the blood of whatever happens will be uh, your responsibility. And as uh, Keller tells us, it was truly a goosebump moment. But the paper this time decided to go ahead and, uh, and publish the story. Michael Kirk, the producer of so many of the great frontline specials that uh, that we've watched over the years, uh, certainly the things that you have covered uh, about the Clinton years in which I was involved, uh, even into League of Denial, which the uh, participants were on this show just a couple months ago. Where does uh, the United States of Secrets rank in terms of your interest and fascination as a filmmaker and your feelings about the product that you put up on the screen? Uh, I think it's the, you know, the perfect manifestation of what Frontline um, is here to do. Uh, after 32 years and hundreds of films, uh, I was here at the very beginning when we created the series, and the idea was always that it would uh, take on the stories that nobody else in broadcast journalism would do, and even lots of people in print journalism wouldn't do, and that we would be here as an institution to help Americans know the things they needed to know. Uh, this is a classic example of you think you know a lot about the story, but you don't understand the story. And I hope after you see this film and after you see many front lines, you'll finally understand what, uh, what, uh, what the story really is all about so that you can make a judgment about it. Uh, in this case, is uh, Edward Snowden a hero or a traitor? Uh, did the program exist and should it exist and is it saving lives and how do we feel about it? Well, you probably wouldn't have even known that this was a topic worth talking about if in the first place the Times hadn't written the story in 2005 finally, if Snowden hadn't released what he released and I think in our own way if we hadn't pulled it all together so that you could make a judgment, uh, spend a couple of hours of your life uh, making uh, making a judgment about should there be a debate about this? Uh, is it worth what it's worth in terms of our privacy and uh, risks to the Constitution to uh, gather this much information? Is it is it is it right or is it wrong? You can't really decide that if you can't discuss it, and you can't really discuss it if you don't know about it. And that's what we're here to do. Michael Kirk, Part Two of United States of Secrets airs Tuesday night on a PBS station near you. Uh, what do we have to look forward to in Part Two, which one of your colleagues directed? I think correct. Uh, Marty Smith, uh, Martin Smith, uh, is making that film, and it's uh, it really takes the story to the next place, which is the role of Google, Yahoo, the telecoms, the the collaboration between uh, the National Security Agency and some of our biggest, most successful businesses. Sometimes uh, they knew they were collaborating, and sometimes 
Uh, they didn't know the information was being gathered. It's a, it's a story of how the government, when it's another story of how the government, when it's up against it and really worried about something, decides to write the new rules and uh, and do some things that uh, might make the rest of us uh, a little concerned about uh, our own privacy, even when we give that privacy up to Yahoo or Facebook, not to mention the implications in the world of these businesses when Germans and Chinese and others say, I don't longer want to cooperate with these American companies if the government is grabbing information uh, from them. So it's a, it's a fascinating next implications of, uh, of the program and how the Obama administration uh, has had to confront uh, what they have to confront about it. Michael Kirk, writer and director of the program, The Program. On Frontline, Part 2, Tuesday night on PBS. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. My pleasure, Josh. After the break, continuing today's theme of the United States of Secrets, it's Terry Lensner, famed Washington private eye and author of The Investigator, 50 Years of Uncovering the Truth. History in the making. This is POTUS. POTUS. Sirius XM 124. Back now on Polyoptics, Sirius XM, Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. I'm Josh King, and I'm joined in Washington, D.C. by Terry Lensner, author of The Investigator, 50 Years of Uncovering the Truth. Terry's the founder and chairman of Investigative Group International and was an assistant chief counsel to the Senate Watergate Committee, beginning his career as a Justice Department attorney with the Civil Rights Division and was a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. After founding IGI, he has served a variety of corporate political clients over the years and is now out uh, with the book, the memoir of his years, spanning back to the beginning of the civil rights era and uh, and up to the present. Terry Lensner, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Private investigators often want to uh, take their secrets to the grave or never reveal a client's confidences. Why now do we see the investigator in which you are willing to talk about aspects of your career? Um, well, Josh, the reason I, I decided to do this is because, first of all, I was in a lot of locations in the middle of cases and uh, and interesting things that were happening. And uh, I decided that I wanted to eventually put something in writing to so people would not forget some of the things that were going on and some of the things that I observed. Um, and I also wanted to make sure that the public in the, in the United States understood the incredible um, uh, achievements that the Congress and, uh, and uh, members of the Senate uh, achieved during the uh, racial uh, conflicts in Mississippi and Alabama, which I was in, involved in a lot, and uh, the fact that uh, we were able to uh, get the 1965 Voting Rights Act passed, which gave minority people for the first time an opportunity to vote as a, as American citizens, was a huge uh, impact uh, both in the South and throughout the country. Uh, and for the first time, we were able to get people of different races and and uh, and colors uh, to uh, to be able to have a chance to vote and it, and it transformed the South. I went back to um, Selma, Alabama, with uh, John Doerr, who was the head of the Civil Rights Division during when all this turmoil took place, and, and a great 
hero of the people that worked uh, on these cases. And there was a, there's always a reenactment of the march across yep. the, the bridge. And um, when we finished with the march, we they had the local police and uh, and uh, 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 state troopers uh, there. And um, I went up to one of the state troopers who was about six feet seven, and I said, I, I was investigating people like you back in the 60s, and you don't look anything like them, <laughs> which is true. This guy was a African American, and I was always with the uh, investigating the uh, white um, uh, police and uh, state police. Uh, not too long ago, President Obama convened a group in the East Room to bestow the Presidential Medal of Freedom on a, a bunch of uh, worthy candidates. One of them, Terry Lentzner, was uh, your mentor, John Doerr. And I want to hear a little bit about what President Obama said about Doerr and have you recall for me why a young man out of Harvard, bred in New York City as you were, uh, made such a home for yourself in the Deep South during these days. It was a scorching hot day in 1963, and Mississippi was on the verge of a massacre. Uh, the funeral procession for Medgar Evers uh, had just disbanded, and a group of marchers was throwing rocks at a line of equally defiant and heavily armed policemen. And suddenly a white man in a shirt sleeves, hands raised, walked towards the protesters and talked them into going home peacefully. And that man was John Doerr. He was the face of the Justice Department in the South. He was proof that the federal government was listening. And over the years, John escorted James Meredith to the University of Mississippi. He walked alongside the Selma to Montgomery March. He laid the groundwork for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. In the words of John Lewis, he gave civil rights workers a reason not to give up on those in power. Terry Lensner, how did you come to associate with John Doerr, and how did your path in life bring you from New York, Northeast, Harvard, and then down into Mississippi? Well, that's a great question, and um, it was a lot uh, of fortuities placed together. So uh, it started in the summer of 63 when I was a young intern at a major New York law firm, and to make a long story short, uh, there was a very uh, uh, prominent uh, partner, name partner there. Um, the firm was uh, Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. And Lloyd Garrison, who was a uncle or, uh, of um, the Freedom Writers, came to me and said, I've been watching you, Terry, and I think uh, you should go to see my friend John Doerr. Uh, at the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. And I said, well, thank you, Mr. Garrison, but um, I don't know anything about civil rights. And he said, just do what I tell you to do. So I basically did what he told me to do. And I got on a train and went down to Washington, and they told me that it was going to be, 64 was going to be the the Freedom Summer of uh, in Mississippi, and it was going to be historical, and we want you to come with us. So, And I think part of that was... Um, that I had just gotten off, finished uh, my football career at Harvard, and you uh, can handle yourself down there. And, they th and I think that's what John thought. He said, "Maybe this guy can go down there, and, uh, and maybe he's tough enough to handle himself." And I ended up in a lot of uh, um, difficult situations, but uh, was able to work my way out of them. 
Were you pretty much able to base in the same place, or did you and John move from city to city, hotel room to hotel room? How how did you actually sort of uh, immerse yourself working down there with John? We were we were moving all the time. We were traveling all the time. Um, John had a uh, a uh, name for his uh, the people that he moved around a lot, and he called us the fast ponies. So we were supposed to be on alert. And whenever a crisis took place of a bombing of the Kofo houses, which is the, the civil, the, the um, people trying to get uh, African-Americans registered to vote, uh, if there was a crisis in one of those locations, I would get notice to go go look at that thing and see what the, the damage was by the bo- of the bomb and talk to the people that were, that were um, attacked. And so I was, if you look at, I saved my, uh, my uh, vouchers for travel and I had thousands of miles every month uh, driving. This is all driving. And as it as pointed out in the uh, materials that we were not allowed to have a air-conditioned car. And now, so in the, this was the summer of 64. And um, <clears throat> it was uh, it was extremely uh, difficult because we couldn't, we could hardly breathe in the, in the, in the cars, but we were moving around everywhere. And I was, it went to Philadelphia, Mississippi, where the three, uh, civil rights workers had been uh, kidnapped and then uh, uh, shot on the road. And th- from there, I went to uh, another location where we were trying to desegregate a school in Alabama. And then I went to uh, Selma and Montgomery. And I actually marched with John from uh, Selma to Montgomery when we finally got the march authorized by the uh, federal uh, uh, courts. As a young man from the Northeast, what were... what? what as you as you crisscross the South and put all of these thousands of miles underneath your car without the air conditioning, what was your impression of this part of the country and how it was struggling with civil rights? Well, that's another great question, Josh. Um, first of all, of course, I hadn't I didn't know anything about the South when I went down there. Um, I had never been in the South and uh, basically grew up in New York and and uh, you know, went to school at uh, Exeter in New Hampshire and uh, Harvard Law School and Harvard. Um, so this was a completely new world I had never been involved in. And um, for whatever reason, I took to it as an investigator and and uh, interviewer. It just felt natural. And so I was going around by myself uh, interviewing people, and uh, they passed a, a rule at the Department of Justice that you couldn't be out after dark if you were alone in the car. And I drove around at night. Uh, all the time um, because I just felt I was could take care of myself and uh, um, but what I what I learned from it was I was in people's houses I once uh, jumped up on a, a rickety cab a cabin that uh, had an individual who said he saw the boys being buried and I went right through the floor of the uh, cabin and the next thing I knew there was an alarm going off Outside, and uh, an FBI car had come up and was looking for me because I was supposed to be back in uh, Meridian, Mississippi, that night, and I was still interviewing people out in the woods. And uh, other moments of personal jeopardy during your time down there? Well, uh, the uh, I was driving back from uh, Philadelphia, and we we went to see the widow of uh, two of the people that had been killed to get their information about when they when they had left the uh, compounds and where they had been 
And on the way back, I was driving with another uh, young lawyer from California, and uh, I, there was a siren that came up behind me. I, I didn't even see the car coming. And this cop got out and said, uh, uh, you've, you're in violation of the law down here. And I said, well, what did I do wrong? I didn't, I was, I'm not having drink, drinking and, uh, and I've been very careful. He said, well, your left tire was on the white line. Oh, God. So um, he scared the bejesus out of the guy that was with me. But I showed him my ID and he said, okay. Um, and he left us go. But that was, uh, it, it was a replica uh, my my com- my uh, comrade was a uh, was concerned because it, it started to be a replica of exactly what we knew happened to the three guys, which is they were arrested, put in a police car, taken to jail, released after the Ku Klux Klan was organized and uh, took them away and uh, shot them on the uh, in cold blood in the uh, in the on the road, and that that's why I call that chapter. Um, the death, the murder of the innocents, because these kids, they didn't even know, know these kids. These kids were simply down there exercising uh, a right to try to get uh, minorities registered to vote, and they were killed. Well, you did make your escape ultimately from the Deep South, Terry Lensner, and ended up uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, working with Donald Rumsfeld uh, at the Office of uh, Economic Opportunity. And many years later, uh, Rumsfeld was uh, on David Letterman's show and talked a little bit about those days in the Nixon years. And I want to hear what Rumsfeld said and then have you talk about your relationship with uh, Mr. Rumsfeld. Uh, Richard Nixon, what happened there? <laughs> I, I mean, let's just let's just take uh, it's impossible to do. But if we take Watergate uh, out of the equation, what would we be saying about Richard Nixon now? Oh, my goodness. He opened the door to China. He brought an incredibly fine group of people into government. He did things for the environment. Uh, he was a good strategist. And, uh, and Watergate was, was a tragedy. And, of course, at the end of it, when he resigned, he then went about writing books and discussing important issues and contributing. And, and uh, is, is, was Watergate a, uh, an anomaly or, as they say, oh, it's the kind of thing everybody was doing, he just got caught? It's true that he, he taped people's conversations and er, a previous presidents had done that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the Watergate, I just don't know the answer what other presidents did, but it, he's the only one that ever had to resign, and it was a, a, an amazing event in our country's right. history. You know, this conversation is being taped as well. <laughs> just give you a heads up. Terry Lensner, a little bit of humor, but you had a big role in the first uh, Nixon term and then also a big role in Watergate. And it turns out that you and Donald Rumsfeld, both collegiate athletes, strapping young men, really had a rapport at the OEO, didn't you? Yes, we did. And uh, just to make the record clear, I met uh, Don through John Doerr. Uh, they, ha- they both happened to go to Princeton and... Uh, Don had just gotten appointed to be head of the Office of Economic Opportunity, the NA Poverty Program, and he was looking for young people to be his assistants because he had just left the Congress. He'd only spent two years as a Chicago congressman, and I didn't know him at all. And uh, Don introduced me to him, and we, I went down to Washington to talk with Don, and it was ma- and it was really magic because uh, first of all he was a Princeton wrestler and I was a Harvard football player and that clicked but we also from a personality standpoint from an energy standpoint um 
we just were like brothers instantly. And that's remained uh, also consistent with our relationship now. Although, um, you know, he, we, we, the record will show that uh, I was fired by him uh, because I wouldn't uh, comply with his instructions to cut back on the kinds of cases that legal service lawyers should could bring against corporations or migrants or farmers uh, on behalf of migrants. Um, and the, the White House was intent on the mollifying uh, Republican donors for the next election. And that was basically what uh, what Don was uh, had to to comply with himself. And uh, eventually he said, um, you know, you're just not uh, able and willing to comply with what I'm telling you to do. You have to do what I tell you to do. The president wants you to do what what the, what I want him to do, what I want you to do. And you, you're just going to refuse to do it. And I said, that's right, I am. And then he fired me. But um, I felt that the statute that, st- that set up this thing, and I had I didn't know anything about this program until until John uh, introduced me to Dorr, I mean to, to Dunn. Um, so I just took it, okay, here's the statute. It says that this is a program to, to allow lawyers representing poor people to have the same rights of access to the court systems than people who have wealthy clients. And so that's what I took to be the mandate. And uh, I decided that I wasn't going to cross any lines that violated that that uh, law. And that meant they the, the lawyers had to have a free hand to do what they wanted to do. So we were suing people like uh, Governor Reagan, uh, uh, farmers who were being uh, unfair to uh, migrant workers, um, police departments. Um, it was it was a broad diversity of trying to remedy things that have been going on for years. And basically, the Nixon administration didn't want to um, see that happen. And then how did you find yourself in the proverbial other side of the court on the Irving Committee investigating Watergate, serving a subpoena on President Nixon? Well, that's a good question. Uh, again, somewhat fortuitous because um, after Don had fired me, um, there was a single one individual in Washington who came to my um, uh, help, and that was Edward Bennett Williams, the legendary lawyer in uh, Washington, who I didn't even know. But he called me up and he said, "I saw what you did for legal services, and I want you to come down and meet with me and my lawyers." at my law firm and then he put me to work um, and then when it came time when it came time to staff up the Watergate committee um, Ed uh, recommended me as one of the first people to Senator Irvin and Senator Irvin decided to um, hire me now there was a uh, interesting uh, problem because the Republican White House tried to convince Irvin that I was uh, not neutral because I had been fired by Don, and that uh, I had also, by that time, represented the Berrigan brothers in the litigation, in the criminal litigation, to put them in jail for um, destroying draft cards and hurting the the Army's uh, capabilities of drafting people and sending them over to Vietnam. So they had two hooks on me, uh, and uh, to uh, Don's credit, uh, when these came up in the review, 
the White House objected to my uh, being hired by Don, and uh, and Don just said he just announced said I've announced it already. And now, uh, when when it came time for me to go interview with Irvin, it came up again. Uh, but I explained to Irvin what had happened, and he said, "Fine, okay, we're going to go with you." And then fast forward, we had a. I, I don't know if you want to hear this, yeah. uh, but fast forward, we had a witness come up as a surprise witness during the Watergate hearings. A guy named uh, Richard Moore had come up to testify that John Dean had lied about the meetings that he, Dean, had with um, with the president. And uh, when the uh, when when I got to cross-examine him, I had, I had interviewed... Uh, more when I heard that uh, Dean was going to testify because he had had dealings with uh, with uh, D- with Dean Moore did, and so I interviewed Moore and he couldn't remember anything for the two and a half hours I interviewed him, and uh, when so when he showed up as a surprise witness, I figured I don't he, they they got surprises, but I know whatever he testifies to, he won't be able to remember where it all came from, so I basically took him apart. Um, by asking him questions, don't you remember when you told me X? Now you're saying it was Y, and you know that kind of strategy, and it basically destroyed his credibility. Moving uh, through the book, uh, the investigator, fifty years of uncovering the truth by Terry Lentzner. Terry, uh, at some point, uh, you start to work on some very interesting cases, uh, both in the sort of uh, government realm and also in the private realm, and. We'll touch on some of them, but uh, having read the book and then doing a little searching, uh, I had this very interesting sort of step back into the way TV news used to cover the interesting and the bizarre. Hmm. One of them was a ABC News uh, special report by uh, that included uh, reporting from correspondent Paul Altemeyer on the curious case of Dr. Frank Olson and Sid Gottlieb. I want to hear a little bit of that documentary. Covering a span of history such as we are in this report, one can get sidetracked by the so-called glamour and mystery of espionage work or by the exotic qualities of some drugs. But what you can't lose sight of is what all of this would mean in terms of individual human beings. There would be deaths, there would be long-lasting and harmful effects. The best-known case is that of this man, Frank Olson, a chemist employed by the Army Chemical Corps, who in 1953 was slipped LSD unknowingly at a meeting with CIA officials. Shortly after that, Olson went into severe depression. He ended his life at this New York hotel by diving through a shaded closed window in his 10th floor room. Frank Olson was the first known fatality in the CIA's LSD program. Olson left behind a widow, Alice, and three children. But it would be years before they learned the real story of his death. Terry Lentzner, how did you get involved in the CIA case and Frank Olson? I had a uh, friend uh, who worked at the agency, and uh, I was asked to meet with um, Sid Gottlieb, who was actually the, the uh, master of, uh, of the LSD experiments, uh, he was the head of um, this uh, special unit for uh, experiments and uh, uh, utilization of drugs and also other uh, issues. And of course, it ended up with uh, some attempts on uh, by the United States and the CIA to eliminate some leaders in different parts of the world. Um, I was asked to um, 
to uh, go meet with Sid Gottlieb, uh, who was coming back from working in a uh, in a, lo- a, a, f- a location in uh, uh, Africa, um, and uh, when he came back, uh, he wanted to uh, have a, a news conference. Uh, his name had come up a lot, and he got to be known in the media as Dr. Death uh, because it, it had come out that he had been in, in the middle of the attempts to assassinate foreign leaders. And I asked him to uh, meet me in a park uh, in Washington where I th- thought he'd feel secure because there was no, there were just a few trees and there was there was no area that could be obscured that could be used to to be um, filming him or uh, surveilling him. Uh, and so we went and sat there, and he, he tried to, to justify, I'm, I'm going to do a press conference. And knowing already from the media what he had already been accused of, I told him, I'm not going to represent you for do, to do a press conference because you'll get basically uh, mangled and you'll regret uh, ever exposing yourself to the media to answer those kinds of questions. So I convinced him of doing that, and then we ended up going in the front of the church committee, and that's when a lot of the um, assassination stuff came out. Um, the LSD program was uh, requested by the higher-level pe- uh, people in both the DOD and the uh, CIA, and uh, Sid was chosen... Uh, because he was a uh, chemical expert uh, in uh, graduate school, and so he had he was familiar with the, a lot of the uh, most uh, terrifying, uh, powerful uh, chemicals and drugs that were being developed in uh, in a, uh, a laboratory in uh, in Washington, as a matter of fact. Uh, so uh, we were we were confronted with uh, with those issues. And I first insisted that he take the Fifth Amendment because uh, because of Olson, because Mr. Olson did uh, jump out of that window in that hotel, and he did uh, pass away after that. And I and the uh, DA in Manhattan was doing an investigation uh, for murder uh, dealing with Mr. Olson. So I I insisted that we do a take a, a Fifth Amendment. Uh, defense, which of course the press also took apart or tried to, um, and uh, um, it was my job to to protect him and uh, legally, and that's what I did. Um, Terry Lensner, with Monica Lewinsky coming back into the news recently, the uh, story that she wrote for Vanity Fair for the June issue one is brought back to. Uh, 1998-1999 impeachment and as I was thinking about my conversation with you uh, I brought in up my own biases about uh, having been working at the White House reading certainly the local clips the Times and the Washington Post and the perception that Terry Lentzner was uh, the investigator who was helping the Clintons uh, defend against impeachment and as I read your book 
I'm presented with a very different view uh, of what you were thinking at the time, what you were actually doing, the level of involvement that you had with the Clintons. And so I'm curious about what you felt at the time about being portrayed that way. And and then looking back 20 years later, your your thoughts on, on the way 1998 and 1999 went down. Well, I'm, de- I would, I'm delighted to answer that last question. Uh, the... Um the, my, my take on um, uh, the Clinton uh, uh, allegations that you know we were the KGB or the Secret Service for the president was uh, so off base and and had so little uh, credibility to it that um, it was it was frustrating and it was uh, made me angry because they were, the press was printing things that were not accurate, not true, and uh, to go forward to the uh, uh, Ken Starr uh, hearings because um, I was summoned to the grand jury by the judge. Um, you that, and Sid Blumenthal, right? <laughs> and Sid, Co-conspirators, right? right. <laughs> and I will tell you a funny story about Sid in a second. But but uh, what what steered stirred the Republicans uh, was these allegations, which unfortunately for them they assumed were correct. When they read a story in the media about Terry Lindsner doing this and Terry Lindsner doing that, it all turned out to be no basis at all, and it was easy for me to dismiss them because none of it was true. You were, in fact, quite critical of the DNC and the Clinton fundraising apparatus for accepting political contributions that couldn't be verified, weren't you? Yes, I was. I was critical of that. And in fact, on one of the investigations that you just referenced, Josh, um, based on our investigation, the the uh, committee for the, uh, the Educational Legal Defense Fund was um, forced to return $700,000 of contributions that had come in that we had deemed to be not justified and not uh, related to uh, to specific individuals. Who Over were. the president's protest, I think, your book points out. Yes, that's correct. The president did not want to go along. He felt that he needed those funds to for his defense. And uh, actually, we ended up uh, asking him to understand that if he's not going to comply, we're going to have to go to the trustees for the education fund, the legal defense fund, I should say. And, um, and uh, that was... Uh, uh, the Attorney General and Father Hesburg, and when he learned that, he said, "I give up." Your book suggests that Hesburg and the Attorney General uh, offered were prepared to resign their positions over this. Is that and right? That is correct. That's absolutely correct. And he was told that too. And I think that's what prompted him to finally recede and agree to do the smart thing. So Ken Starr thinks you're a Clinton partisan for all that, right? He does, and and he had almost, and he and his people. Um, were were a parody of a grand jury and of an investigation. Uh, a parody because they didn't know what they were doing, because they assumed that when they were told something by a news person that was really negative about uh, the Clintons or people related to the Clintons, they believed it. And it was the luckiest thing that could possibly have happened to the Clintons. For one thing, the Lewinsky stuff just distracted them completely from the issues that I would have suggested had I been working for Star, which I wouldn't do, but uh, would, which was go back and look, see where the money went, which is the standard, uh, you know, uh, cry. Um, go find out what the money, where the money came from, 
which is, by the way, the same thing we did with uh, when John McCain was running, um, and he was running as a as a successful businessman. And I said to Bob Schrum, "Let's find out where he got uh, his successful business experience," and that's when we came up with the uh, the Bain Capital uh, issue. That's that's a side thing, but uh, so let me go back to where we were, um, and. Uh, because of the investigation, we, uh, we, we had them turn back uh, the money. The, the grand jury was uh, both a joke and a parody. Uh, and I say that because they asked all these questions that they had assumed what the, the answers were. Uh, for example, uh, when was the last time you reported your activities to the president? And I was able to say, I've never met the president. I have never <laughs> talked to the president. And they were totally baffled by that because everybody thought I was close to the president, and I was one. Of, and I wish I had been, but but that wasn't true. And so they just were shocked. And then when when I went into the grand jury, um, and uh, they and I ran into Sid on the way uh, out of the grand jury, and the first question they asked when I came to the grand jury was, "How long have you known Sid Blumenthal?" And I looked at my watch, and I said, about 22 seconds. <laughs> and I was, com- I was comfortable in the grand jury because I had been a prosecutor in New York, and I had been in many, many grand juries. I had run them myself. So they kind of picked the wrong guy to go after in the grand jury, but they, there was also a, um, a uh, controversy um, that uh, Richard Moore... Um, who was the guy that I, I cross-examined, uh, had a lawyer who was who joined Ken Starr's group and, um, and had represented uh, Moore, and he had a conflict of interest, and he was one of the most uh, vigorous uh, people uh, to, uh, against me, and he signed the subpoena to force me to go to the grand jury. So... As I wrap up with Terry Lensner, author of The Investigator, 50 Years of Uncovering the Truth, uh, Terry, I want to tell you that I am conducting my own investigation, and uh, I would like to uh, cross-examine you if I could. Um, I've exhausted all public records available using all of the techniques that you would outline in The Investigator about how to conduct an investigation. So finally, I just have to take the key witness and ask him directly, who is the subject of Eric Siegel's love story? <laughs> is it Terry Lensner or is it Al Gore? I want to have an answer right now under oath. Okay, Josh. Here's what I know. That's actually very funny. Um, Eric Siegel, I got to know it when I was at Harvard. He used to hang around with the jocks. He was doing a lot of weightlifting. And so I got to know him. He became sort of a friend. And uh, when... When the Al Gore uh, uh, thing uh, hit the public, um, I think that was Gore's statement. I don't think. I don't think. Anyway, Eric called me from London because he was living in London at that stage, and said the White House called me and they they want to talk to me, and I think it's about the Al Gore thing. And I said, uh, "Well, uh, Eric, uh, what do you want? What are you going to tell him if if you go on the media?" And he said, well, I don't know. That's why I'm calling you. And I said, well, uh, my my recommendation is don't say anything. So that's how he ended it up. But uh, but uh, I, I would say what I know 
is I did get a letter from uh, Eric, and I still have it uh, on on our wall in my house, and it basically says that yes, you were uh, the character for um, the hockey player in the love story, but I I I say to that that there were probably a number of people who were uh, his models for that, and it could have been me, it could have been anybody else. So the mystery will continue long after this episode of Polyoptics about who exactly Eric Siegel intended to base Oliver Barrett the fourth on. Did yeah, I think I think it goes with my uh, slogan, which is create your own reality. People do that all the time, and that's the other theme of the book, which is... Uh, a lot of a lot of people come to us who have a lot of money and they want to rewrite history and create their own reality and uh that's a pretty inter- interesting experience too particularly when you go to them and say there's no support for your theory of what happened that was uh um uh with uh, Mohammed Fayed Mohammed Fayed yeah. and Dodi that's right, right. Well, uh, more of Terry Lenzner's secrets and stories are to be found in The Investigator, 50 Years of Uncovering the Truth. Uh, We've had a a wonderful half hour with him today, but find out much more in his book. Terry Lenzner, thanks so much for joining us on Polyopolis. Well, Josh, thank you very much. Your questions were terrific, and I'd like to meet you in person at some point. Anytime. I'm up here in your old hometown of New York City, sir. You got it. Take care. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.